What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Today, I am so happy to be talking with my friend, Alan Robert. Many of you know Alan as the bassist and songwriter for the heavy metal band Life of Agony. And a few years back, I was so psyched that Rolling Stone rated Life of Agony's River Runs Red album as one of the greatest heavy metal albums of all time, which I particularly appreciated as the song River Runs Red is one of my favorite songs of all time. And Alan is also the creator of the best-selling coloring book series, The Beauty of Horror, and just announced the newest addition to the series, The Beauty of Horror 5, Haunt of Fame. Now, at Hardcore Humanism, our goal is to help you apply some of the core principles of humanistic psychology so that you can break free from the conventions and expectations that others may place on you or that you may put on yourself, find your purpose in life, and work hard to achieve it. And Alan has dedicated himself professionally to a lifetime of artistic expression and has had great success in different mediums. But one of the themes that cuts across much of Alan's work is the exploration and embrace of horror. And so I wanted to talk with Alan about the psychology of horror as a genre and a theme. And one of the reasons this concept is so important to hardcore humanism is because horror, whether in art, music, or film, is often dismissed as frightening, harmful, and ultimately damaging because it explores terrifying themes. And thus, people who enjoy this art form are often stigmatized as somehow being damaged or dangerous. But for fans of horror, it is in fact the extreme nature of the art that ultimately can be a safe and healthy form of emotional validation, exploration, and expression. And Alan's ability to bring the energy and thematic content of horror into a very new medium, coloring books, gives perhaps an entirely new audience an opportunity to safely understand and experience challenging emotions while also challenging the stigma that horror and horror fans sometimes carry. So let's hear what Alan has to say. Let's just get right down to it. When did horror become something that was important in your life? Um, my family grew up in Brooklyn. Um, and I was uh, a little kid when we had just got HBO for the first time. And they were airing Amityville Horror. And so I guess it was like 1979, 80. Um and I begged my parents to watch it, even though it was rated R. And reluctantly, they gave in. And um, I sat there with my popcorn on the floor. We didn't, it was like such a small bedroom. Um, you know, it was like the furniture-sized television set. And I'm right in front of it, eating my popcorn. And the music comes on, the, ah, ah. And I was out. That was it. That was it for me. You know, I was like this little kid scared the shit out of me but you know i went next door to my bedroom and hid under my covers and i heard the whole movie through the wall you know it was like those old brooklyn uh houses with the really uh thin walls so i listened to the the whole movie through the wall and which was probably worse than watching the whole thing because you know in in hindsight it's kind of a cheesy movie but um, and not a whole lot happens, but uh, my imagination took over and listening to the sounds and the sound effects and the music um, was scarier than anything I could imagine, I think. Now, most people, when they get scared, pivot away from that, you know, and so what made you pivot 
towards that. Cause that's yeah. a very, that's, that's a unique, that's a, it's not, it's not like unique. Like obviously there's, there's millions of people who love horror, but not everybody reacts that way. How did, what, what drew you back to that when you previously were under the covers? I think it's that, um, that sense of fear, um, fear and intrigue combined. And, you know, I, I was a kid growing up in the, in the seventies. I mean, Star Wars came out 77 and that was probably one of my first movies that I was really blown away by. And as soon as I got home, um, I would draw all the characters from memory because you couldn't turn on your television and see them. Um, there was no merchandise available yet. You know, they had like four figures out. Um, so my way of reliving this great experience was through my artwork. And I would draw the cantina scene as best as I could remember. Um, and I did the same thing with horror movies. Um, the visuals and the feeling that I got from watching them inspired me to create artwork. And um, that's something that has never uh, left me. And as I got uh, better as an illustrator, uh, I would go into my own realms of uh, horror stories and, and characters um, inspired by the things that I love growing up. Now, now, when you're saying it inspired you to draw, did it inspire you because you were freaked out by it and you wanted to figure out how to cope with that? Or was it just like, no, like, it, the fear lit up my brain and now my brain's just lit up in, in, a, in a bunch of ways. Yeah. I was definitely scared of the stuff in the beginning, the, uh, some of the visuals, and then it became, how did they do that? And more of an interest in the special effects side of things. And I would get the Fangoria magazines and famous monsters and all that stuff. And you'd read articles with, you know, Rick Baker and John Landis and you'd find out, you know, you'd see like, a black and white grainy picture of like the thing, you know, in, in those magazines or American Werewolf in London, which was another favorite. Um, so I think it was, it was the special effects side of things that really got me inspired to draw. Here's the thing that I'm kind of curious about. All right. Because I watch the movies and I just, I'm like, Oh, I watched the movie. I'll go watch another movie at some point. And you watch the movie and we're then like, I'm going to go do something, right? Mm. Like I'm going to go do something creative, right? And now that may just be because like, look, you're a creative guy and whatever, but at, at any point, were you aware of the fact that most people who were watching the movie were not then going and doing something like, were you, did it ever occur to you? Like, Hey, like my, not all my friends are drawing. I was definitely the oddball in that sense for sure. But I was always the kid at the school lunchroom table, like, drawing in my notepad, crazy monsters and whatever came to my mind. And a lot of kids would circle around to see what I was doing because it was like more entertaining than like having a food fight at the moment. You know what I mean? And that's how I made a lot of friends in school, just by drawing and people would check it out. And usually it was bizarre and twisted and gruesome. Now, did you ever get any pushback from people? Like did, did teachers or other people come up and be like, Hey, like, what are you doing or you shouldn't be doing this or. Oh yeah. Only I would draw the teachers and they would, <laughs> they would look like the teachers and it, you know, it was usually poking fun at them and those drawings would get passed around the class and then eventually up at the teacher's desk and then I get thrown out of the class. Yeah. <laughs> that happened too. 
Did you ever consider stopping? Like, I mean, was there ever a time where you were like, either I don't want to do this or I'm, I'm not doing it anymore? No, if anything, it, it kind of expanded because in the 80s, if you remember, especially in the, in the metal uh, scene, everyone had the denim jackets that were painted with the album covers on the back. And, you know, at 16, I was, I was making loot, man. I was painting Eddie all over the place. I was like, Iron Maiden, sure. You know, Led Zeppelin, no problem. It was like, it turned into like a little business for me. I was like painting jackets and all kinds of stuff. It was kind of intertwined. I think like that's almost how I got into metal too, because like between the visuals of Kiss and Iron Maiden, I didn't even know what Iron Maiden sounded like. I just bought it because of the album covers and uh, I would draw them on my notebooks and stuff. And um, it just happened that they wrote kick-ass music at the time too. And that's, it was kind of a, a meld of my favorite things, scary imagery with, with cool music. Now, were you already playing music before you discovered things like Iron Maiden? Or did you then get into music once you discovered Kiss and Iron Maiden? Yeah, I didn't pick up a guitar until much later. You know, I was like, I, I got into um, music probably like 14 and I didn't pick up a guitar till like 17. And then LOA was basically one of my very first bands. So the first time I ever played bass was for Life of Agony. I was I learned how to play guitar on my own. And then uh, I hooked up with Joey and he needed a bass player. And that's the beginning of it. Now, let me ask you this. At that point, when you have these two, com- not competing, but you have these two creativities happening, like how did you balance that? Like, was it you just were doing both then from there on in? Did you have phases where it was like, okay, I'm, I'm focusing more on the drawing and the art and other times we're focusing on the music like how how does that how does that live in someone who's an artist in multiple modalities well when i started getting really serious about art in high school and then like what am i going to do for a career i applied to school visual arts in manhattan and i got in on a scholarship and i was in the cartooning program and um i actually had um walt simonson the artist who who drew thor uh, as a teacher, my my whole goal was to become a comic book artist like him and maybe work for, you know, Marvel or DC one day. But that's when the band was getting started, too. And we, you know, we would play gigs up and down the East Coast as an unsigned band and build building our following until we signed the deal uh, with Roadrunner in 92. And I was graduating that year, like we had recorded River on Dread in my senior year of college. And I kind of had to make a choice. Like, am I going to like jump in the van with these guys and, and, and give this a shot or go take my portfolio around and try and get a job. And I figured, you know what, this music thing, it'll be over in about six months, you know, and uh, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And um, I jumped in the van, never looked back and it turned into 20 years now 30 years um but i always did art along the way i did all the the flyers the t-shirts the i mean pretty much every t-shirt over the last 30 years uh i put together so and i did artwork for other bands over time and eventually uh, about 10 years ago i started writing and drawing my own graphic novels with idw and 
that led to, you know, the beauty of horror series, which just kind of like blew my mind how popular it came in the last four years. Now, let me just go back to River Runs Red for a little bit. And then obviously we're going to talk about Guliana and everything going on there. But when you write music, right, in theory, at least my impression always was that River Runs Red was very personally exploring horrors, right? Whereas a lot of times when we watch horror movies, it's not really like, it's not like, oh, I'm really connecting to this because I too am a vampire. You know what I mean? <laughs> Wait, that's I the sound bite. I know. It's like, exactly. I know. But like when you're doing the music, does it like, do you feel like you're more coming from that personal place? Whereas when you're coming from the art, it's a little bit more fantasy and imagination, or is there more of a blend of both? Um, hmm. I, I do think that music is definitely a more personal expression, but like being a fan of music and being a fan of horror movies, there's certain things in both of those um, spaces that inspire me in different ways. And there's bands that I love, you know, lifelong Misfits fan. And, you know, and there's certain changes within the songs and and the lyrics and and the feeling that you get from Misfits songs that inspire me to write my own songs, even though they come out completely different. Same thing with horror movies. Uh, There's certain moments in horror movies that always stick with me that that have inspired me to do uh, my own projects, even though they're very different. So I think that the the core feeling of both, whether it's music or art, um, has an impact on me to kind of push me in a direction, if that makes sense. Yeah, like push you in a direction, like I'm going to bring something out that is in there, like for me emotionally, or more like, oh, like, you know, like you said, like the misfits, like I'm looking at their presentation, whatever. And now that's making me kind of think of this, this big, bad visual. And so now I'm going to kind of follow that creatively. Yeah. I think it's just like certain things, whether it's movies or music or certain pieces of art inspire me to be creative. And then, and then my emotions or whatever comes out through those different channels and you know, every single song that I've written has started at a different place. So I could write a lyric and then write the music underneath it or riffs come to mind and then the music comes later. There's no real formula. It just, I feel like creativity in a lot of ways and and this may sound strange, but I almost feel like people that do creative work have an antenna and when that antenna's up and you can kind of pull in certain pieces of energy, it could channel through you uh, in a lot of ways. And it may sound strange, but you know, there's times where the antenna is not catching the signal and some people may call it writer's block, but I just feel like all of that creativity is out there and you have to be open enough to tap into it. You know, and so that's, that's one of the things that's, that to me is very interesting because one of the things as an example in the literature for like, at least the psychological literature is that there's so many studies that show that music and art therapy have mental and physical benefits. It's like, I mean, honestly, like with the exception of like eating vegetables and walking, it's like that that's probably, and maybe, maybe meditating to a degree, like, And yet a lot of people who 
are in music or in the arts talk about struggling with things. And part of it, part of it is the, is the lifestyle, obviously, like you're talking about going on the road. I mean, everything about a musician's lifestyle seems uniquely pointed at destroying someone's well-being, you know, like <laughs> no sleep, like, you know, like, like you don't know where your next meal is. But, but the other part that feels, that feels very different is that like for, for someone to go and just say, Hey, I'm going to draw for an hour every week. That's a great thing. Like if that's not in your life. But to be an artist, it, it, it's this thing that you're talking about, which I want to I drill down on a little bit, that being aware of what's going on in the world, that's a very different space emotionally. That, that strikes me as very difficult to do and not necessarily always comfortable. Uh, th- does, that, does that make sense? Well, I think there's two sides of being an artist. And um, unfortunately, the business side of it is the part that kills artists and creativity. And if, if someone had endless time and endless wealth to just be creative and didn't have to worry about that side, I think you'd get a lot better art and a lot better music out there than if people were stuck in these confinements and schedules and deliverables for, you know, labels or publishers or whatever to try and appeal to the certain audience that's going to buy that product. And it, you know, it's uh, the business side is, is the killer, you know, and you're never going to make everyone happy. I see a lot of artists struggling to find where they belong and what's going to make them survive financially as an artist. For the first uh, couple of uh, graphic novels that I did, it was really just a, a passion project. You know, sure, they sold a bunch of copies and stuff, but it wasn't really putting food on the table. It wasn't until Beauty of Horror took off that I really didn't have to focus on anything else but that to make a living off of something that I love to do with books. And once that relief came... And that because, you know, that's a stressful part of it that I could just do what I love to do. And it actually is bringing in money. And um, there, you know, once you have that pressure gone, you could really have fun with it. And I think that shows because even on the last Beauty of Horror book that I just did, it kind of saved me during COVID because while everything was locked down, the band wasn't touring, I was drawing horror page after horror page every day and for hours. And it was giving me something to do. It was uh, fun. I was making uh, parodies of my favorite horror movies. Every page is a parody. It saved me. And I think that the way that the fans are reacting to it, they could see the love that went into it. And because the stress was gone. It was actually, uh, it relieved my stress by drawing the book. So I think that comes through in the art when you don't have that weighing on your shoulders. Now, but let me go back to that stress in terms of, I'm very curious about like, again, those, those antenna and, and how you, cause, because a lot of people, even if they're not technically artists to a certain degree, they have to be somewhat creative in their field or innovative. You know, like if you're in a business and you're thinking like, Oh, you know, like, let, let's say you're running a pizza parlor, like, and you just kind of thinking like, oh, like, what's the next trend? It's like, oh, you know, people are catering football games or something like that. That used to be 
hoagies or subs or whatever. And now like people are getting pizza. Okay. I gotta, I gotta think about that. So it's like in almost any field, there's like some degree of having to keep those antenna out there. So I'm very curious, like, did you notice that there were certain times when you were doing it more or less? And what was the difference, you know, between when you really felt like you were connected in with the world and picking up on whatever was going on to be creative. And other times where you're like, man, I'm just, I just, I, I just can't get it. When I say the antenna with the, with the world, or I, I, I mean it more in a um, spiritual or energy type of space. I, I, I wouldn't say that it's like picking up on trends. It's more of, it's like a creative energy that you tap into. Like I, I, I really believe in my heart that all these songs that I write exist somewhere and I tap into it and you get little fragments of it. And that's why it takes, takes a little while to put a, a song together. You're kind of like, I, I hear it in my head, but I have to, I'm looking for that one part to connect it. And I really think that it's kind of, it's strange. It, it's strange. And it's all really hard to describe, but it's almost like channeling energy. It's not really a, for me, it's more of a universal type of way of looking at it um not really tapped into like uh trends or interests or things like that it's more of an energy and ideas come to me like that too for for stories or characters or or uh designs you see like flashes of it and then you try and figure it out with the tools that you have now do you with that model because i'm assuming that you never know when it's going to hit like do you keep a set schedule in terms of when you do, let's say when you're working on this book, like, did you basically be like, all right, I'm going to get up, I'm going to have breakfast and then I'm just going to kind of work. And then, you know, later on I'll take care of the kids or whatever. Or is it like, you're just kind of doing your thing. And then if it hits, you're like, I, I got to go do this. Well, I, with the books, printing schedule and stuff, I, I know I have a certain window to get it done. And how I use my hours is up to me. So if I'm more inspired in the middle of the night, I may wake up and have a have an idea and work and throw off my whole next day because I'm up all night drawing. During COVID, this, on, on this last book, it really filled up my days in a more of a normal schedule uh, to draw. And I was really inspired by the content, too, because it was all my favorite horror movies and stuff. So it was probably the easiest book out of the series for me to tackle whereas the very first coloring book I had to reinvent and retrain myself how to draw in a way because much differently from the graphic novels that have a lot of heavy blacks and shadows and using color to create depth with the coloring book it's all one single line weight and you have to create depth and composition more strategically and that was a challenge. And, and so kind of rethinking on how to do a coloring page versus a comic book um, was something that took me a while uh, to develop. And then when I realized that uh, the very first Beauty of Horror book was 90 pages, I was like kind of overwhelmed. I was like, how am I going to finish this thing? You know, and, you know, you get to the 20 page mark, you're like, damn, I got a lot left. You know, like, what am I going to do? And I started making lists of all the all the horror themes I could think of and just, you know, try and get through it in a way, you know, and then you get to the home stretching, like I finally got my groove, you know, and then, you know, seeing people color those pages and bringing it to a whole nother level, because I don't know if you've seen any of it, but if you go on Instagram and plug in the beauty of horror, 
you see all these fantastic colored pages and they really bring it to life in, in their own way from fans all over the world. And uh, you could see the same page colored by 20 different people and it would look completely different. You know, you know, on that, on that point, I'm kind of curious because I remember when I, I talked with Daryl McDaniels of run DMC, who's, who's super into comic books and has actually written and drawn his own comics. He was saying the following. He said that when you saw a movie or a TV show, you interacted in a way, but it was a little bit more distant. He said there was something about holding a comic book in your hand, that it was yours. It was, there was something about that process that made it more intimate. And I'm kind of wondering if you then feel like, well, then taking it the next level, is like, okay, it's not a movie, something you're watching over here. It's not just a comic book you're holding and you're reading. It's a coloring book, which you're actively engaging. And then you have a little bit of say in terms of what you do, what, what you feel like that experience is for, I, I don't know if you call it a, do you call it a reader? Do you call it a, a drawer? Like, what do you, what do you call someone who, inter, who the, gets one the of the color? I guess a colorist, right? A colorist. So, so what's the, yeah. So what, what do you feel like is the difference in terms of your interacting with the audience in terms of when you, when you do a coloring book as opposed to a comic or as opposed to a graphic novel. And what do you think the audience's relationship is with it? Well, it's, it's kind of cool because I have the experience of both because I started out as a comic book creator, uh, writing stories and drawing those stories. And I know what an isolating experience that is to like lock yourself up, and do all that work and then finally see it come out and read reviews here and there, meet, meet some fans at uh, New York Comic Con and talk about the stories. It's a very isolated experience. With the coloring books, it's completely interactive, like you said, and it's very um, instant. There's an instantaneous chain of events from the moment the book comes out, people start coloring it and you're almost seeing each page in a different way because... I don't picture the pages in color when I draw them. I, I don't really think like that. And I prefer not to even color to be, to be honest with you. I'm not a colorist at heart. I like to draw. And so to see what these people, coloring fans who are really super talented and have a, a vision for what a page could look like and really bring it to life with shading and and highlights and shadows, it is mind blowing. And it inspires me to keep drawing them because it's such a cool feeling to see your artwork come to life with other people's visions. You know, it's interesting because I, I remember when I saw the first time I saw Life of Agony live and I was, it was actually, to me, it was probably one of the most intense shows that I had ever been at until that point. I think it was like, it was like 2000 six, 2000. I don't know where it was. It was in New York city. And all I remember that was, was interesting about it was that Mina was imploring the crowd to get more into it. And I'm like, wait a minute. Like, what? It's like <laughs> she was like, like, you know, stop thinking about your job. Stop thinking. I was like, I was like, who in here is thinking about my jobs right now? I'm, I'm like, I'm completely. So I, I felt like maybe I haven't taken it to the next level in terms of my concerts. But the thing that was interesting about it was that it does seem to me that even though the music is obviously the same, I, I would imagine that the interaction with the crowd shapes it a little bit, you know, like there's there. And that seems to me to be much more similar to the coloring book than let's say a comic 
It's like there's yeah. these two things where there's a lot of audience interaction that either in the moment or later on moving forward, like actually influence the product. You know what I mean? Well, I think, I think absolutely. Right. And, and that's kind of like why Life of Agony hasn't done one of these really sterile uh, live stream shows yet. You know, we may end up doing one, but I'm personally not that into the idea because I think half of what makes a Life of Agony show is the audience and the the interaction. And as I know we're in this crazy time and as much as fans would like, like, love to see that and as much as we would want to play, there's a disconnect, I think. And maybe we'll figure out a, a cooler way to do it somehow, but. Yeah, I could see I could see the the conflict because like on the one hand, I could definitely see especially with with Mina's voice and some of the songs. Like I like as much as I love A River Runs Red as a song. I think I I, I might have told you at some point. I might I might put this on Facebook that, that I had like this like episode. I don't know what the hell was going on, but like for 3 days I listened to the Live in Poland version. Was that what it was called? Live in Poland? The, was, did you guys have like a live CD or something like that? Uh, we did a 20 year strong uh, live in Belgium. Maybe it was. There's definitely, I'm, I'm, I'll send it to you. There's definitely a show that was like live in Poland. There's like, it looks like there's like a hundred thousand people in the audience. Oh, on YouTube. Yeah. 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 And yeah. I played that. I must've played that for like three days straight. I don't know. I don't know what was going on that. Like, I just <laughs> could get like going on. Mon- it was a monster crowd. It was like a hundred thousand. It was insane. I was just, I don't no, know. What, what... I think it was a half a million people on that. That was, was that, was that what it was? Polish Woodstock 2010 or 2011. That, that sounds right. It was something like, yeah, it, I, I was, I may be lowballing with a hundred thousand, but it's like, but as much as I love the energy of that, I could imagine an acoustic river runs red being kind of cool. You know what I mean? Like I could, I could, I could hear it like as being cool, but I certainly would understand for you guys, like, you know, doing it, maybe doing it if it was like in a, in a, in a regular, like kind of acoustic set with an audience still, it would be different, but I could see why doing it with, you know, no audience would just be like, mm, I'd love to hear it, but I get why you guys wouldn't want to do it. And we, we may end up doing it, but um, yeah, uh, I haven't been personally that into the idea just because I, there's a certain energy that's lost. I think lost in translation with that. It's almost like, you know, uh, when bands play uh, late night TV shows, you know, it works for some bands, but some some bands can't pull it off, I think. Yeah. But, you know, getting back to this thing about the the crowd, when you're when you're creating a coloring book, how much are you thinking about what the audience, the colorist, if you will, would do with it? Or are you just like, look, I'm just going to do it. And then like whatever people do, they do. Definitely when I went into the first book, I didn't know, first of all, if it would, if the book was even going to be accepted by colorists. It was almost, you know, the back of it said, you know, art therapy for the abnormal. And that really was the target audience. It was like, if you're sick of, you know, coloring in mandalas or nature or, you know, all these cutesy flowers, this is the book for you. And it was kind of like the anti-coloring book, you know. And when it found its audience and people all over the world were like posting these beautiful pictures of horror scenes, they really made them beautiful. I mean, really grotesque, like zombies and in, in these fields of sunflowers and they would bring it to life and it would, they would be beautiful pieces of art. 
that seeing how people put themselves into the artwork definitely inspired me to to do the other books because I knew kind of what worked certain lines to give them a, a hint of where a highlight would go or you know maybe more detail in a background to create depth like certain certain little techniques uh, I learned from to see you know how people handled the first book and uh, that translated to the other ones as an outsider who's not like super embedded in like you know certainly back then in those cultures like for me you know growing up metal was you know scorpions and, and choir right and, and if you consider zeppelin metal then i guess I've, I've been into metal for a long time but as in terms of like some of the more like i came i came upon thrash and stuff like that a little bit later and it seems to me though that both metal and horror were were genres that were not marginalized, although I think to a certain extent marginalized, but now there, there seems to in both cases be this recognition that a lot of the, 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 a lot of the creative directions are coming from those genres. Like there's some, there's something about the recognition of the open-mindedness that it takes to be, to be in those worlds. And I'm kind of curious just for you having been in both, you know, 40 years ago and now, do you see a difference in terms of how the world treats you as an artist i think that i think you hit something there i think both both horror and metal came from this underground type of space and created their own communities you know and as things got more popular then they hit the mainstream and break those barriers but for the most part i think you know what made horror cool growing up as a kid was there were no stars in there. You know, it's, a, it's not like, Oh, that there's that actor. I got to go see that movie. It was like all unknowns and they were kind of low budget films and fans of those movies really attached themselves. It was like something special that only I know about this. You never heard of that movie. Oh, you got to go to the video store and find out, you know, and same thing with metal, you know, it was like, I got the Metallica no life to leather demo. Have you ever heard it yet? You know, and it was a different world and it was more isolated, obviously, but um, it was more special because DMC said, you know, when you held something in your hand, it felt like it was yours. And I, I think there's a same feeling like that for those two genres. And now even, you know, a lot of the newer horror movies, I feel detached from, you know, whether they're remakes or just kind of regurgitated stories uh in a new bow they're more slick there's big stars in them it's less of that personal uh experience well it's, it's interesting that you say that because it's it's so fascinating to me to look at the importance of cultural context right you know so as an example like i listen to bob dylan music right now or i listen to the rolling stones right now and i think oh that's that's good music but I don't have any real cultural context to understand why it was important music. You know what I mean? Like that there's right. a difference. Like, and I sort of feel like the, all of the, of the specialness, you know? So for example, like when, you know, for me a little bit, like when, like some of the bands from the eighties or even to a certain extent, like grunge, it's like, I think people are going to be listening to some people like Pearl Jam and Nirvana and those bands. And they're going to say like, Oh, you know, this is good music, whatever, but they don't, they're not going to understand why that might have been important then. 
you know, I think it was similar with you guys in the sense that, you know, like, okay, you could listen to river, river runs red, or you could listen to things, but the idea of like, Oh, like bringing melody to hardcore, like no one, no one's gonna, no one's gonna really understand why that might have been unique or important because the, cause, cause it already broke things open. You know what I mean? Like now there's a lot of people who have melody and hardcore, right? Mm-hmm. But back, but back then, so I think that what you're talking about feels like it's in that zone. It's like, yeah, if you slick it up and you have like stars, it's like it, it's it's like someone listening to you guys now and not necessarily it'll be like, oh, this is good, but I'm not gonna it's not gonna feel like mine, like yeah. as much as far as the also it's like it's like the way that you know, I, I think it was more like when you guys went Roadrunner and all that kind of stuff. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I think when when things come out in history and depending on what's happening gener- generationally or um, even with technology, we see a technology just changed the landscape of both, you know, music and film and, and the way that people consume those things. Certain things that we grew up on that were awesome at the time didn't stand up the test of time, right? Like my daughter just um, binged like all three seasons of Stranger Things in a week and she's looking for the next thing. And um, we're looking for something like PG-13, you know, something not too crazy. With the fly that flew on Mike Pence's head in the debate, we, we were like, we should watch the fly. And we, I, pull, <laughs> I pull up the trailer with the Jeff Goldblum fly from the eighties and it's so cheesy, you know? And she was like that, I'm not watching that. That looks ridiculous. But the transition from Jeff Goldblum to the actual fly was seamless. (laughs) I mean, that was fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. I I remember, I remember back then, like I remember thinking that's the thing about, I think with metal and horror also that I think people are starting to recognize. It's like, if you if you listen to it, if you if you get over the the shock, quote unquote, then not everybody feels like like the same way that you were like, oh, I was shocked by this, but now I'm going to go be creative. Not everybody like is like, oh my god, I'm shocked. I have all this revulsion. If you can get past that, and you just listen to what's going on or watch what's going on, it's like they're exploring themes there that like a lot of other people were not doing. You know what I mean? Like I, I as example, like going back to Freddy Krueger, like I, I don't remember anyone like really tackling the issue of sleep or dreams or nightmares in any time. Mean, maybe they were, but I don't remember anyone doing that. I feel like the fly was, was like that. It was like, I don't remember anything where it's like, well, what do you do if you get this, this power? You know, it's, it's like, I, and like struggling with that and like how it could take you over and all that kind of stuff. I thought that was cool, but now it, you know, I don't know. Kids, kids are probably sitting there like, uh, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's certain things that, you know, even like a movie like The Sixth Sense, right? When that came out and the big twist and, oh my God, he was dead the whole time. And, you know, it blew a lot of people's minds sitting in the theater. And then every movie that came out after that was a twist. And it, it became something that you expected. And almost like if it didn't have a twist, well, that movie's lame, you know? Dude, I didn't see that. I didn't see Fight Club happening. Like, I just feel like, like I feel like when I'm watching, I, I didn't see Usual Suspects. I just feel like in terms of, I, I saw all the movies, but I didn't see any of it coming. And I'm sitting there being like, man, like, do I pick up anything from movies? <laughs> <laughs> like watching this, I'm like, like, I just didn't see any of that coming, man. I, I feel like, man, I should, I should know better now. 
I love Sixth Sense and um, even even the village. And um, I wanted to create a twist like that in one of my stories. And that, I think, was the underlying little nugget of inspiration uh, behind Crawl to Me reveal. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that these things make an impact on me. They go back into the library in my brain and then I tap on them when I'm looking for stuff. That's cool. Now, listen, I think we're... I think we're just about out of time. Any any final thoughts? It's good to see you. Yeah, and, uh, dude. Take care. So there you have it. Alan Robert talking about themes of horror in his art and music. Now, there's a lot to take away from the conversation with Alan. But one thing I wanted to highlight was how Alan said that creative people have their antenna up and pull from the energy around them. And this is important on a few different levels. The first is that oftentimes creative people are attuned to the energy around them, which can result in sometimes unsettling emotional experiences. Let's face it, it's easier sometimes emotionally to be tuned out. And creative people just need to be careful and not judge themselves because they pick up on energy and vibes from the world around them that others may not. Second, if we are looking to be more creative in any area of our life, it can be helpful to take time to just observe and experience the world around us for inspiration. Sometimes we're so intent on the creative product that we don't take the time to let our minds wander into different creative spaces. And finally, even if we don't consider ourselves to be creative and have no interest in creativity as a profession or a hobby, it can really be helpful to check in with ourselves and the world around us to understand and manage our emotions. Sometimes if we haven't explored our feelings, we don't understand them. And intense emotions such as panic, anger, or depression may start out as minor frustrations, but build and grow if we haven't taken the time to observe, process, and cope with our feelings. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear on the podcast, subscribe on your favorite app, give us a rating, and write a review. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time.